Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Well, hello, friends, and it's great having you tune in for this uh, Bible study podcast. I heard about a patient in a mental hospital who kept walking around saying, I'm Napoleon, I'm Napoleon. One of the other patients asked him, hey man, who told you that you were Napoleon? The guy responded, God told me. The other patient said, oh no, I didn't. (laughs) I share that silly story with you because as we return to our series in Mark, Mark chapter 3, some serious accusations were being leveled against Jesus, including that he had lost his mind. C.S. Lewis, the former atheist-turned-Christian apologist and writer, was giving a series of talks on the BBC radio years ago, and he wanted to address the notion of many unsaved people that Jesus was a great human teacher, but not God. In response to that unbiblical thinking, Lewis shared these words on the radio and then even later wrote them in his well-known book, Mere Christianity. Uh, Lewis said, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that they're ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but not to accept his claim to being God. This is the one thing we cannot say. A man who was merely a man and who said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems obvious to me, Lewis said, that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. It wouldn't surprise me at all to learn that Lewis had based his comments on the passage before us. Here in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is accused of being deluded and demonic while he claimed to be divine. So let's pick up our reading together. We're going to be in verse 20 of Mark chapter 3. We read here, Then the multitude came together again, so that they, referring to Jesus and the disciples, could not as much eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. I'm choosing to call this message the third man, That's because in the words of C.S. Lewis, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And in this message, we'll see that he was the third man, the Lord. In our previous 
podcast, we had talked about how the multitudes and masses of people were gathering there in Galilee and northern Israel because of Jesus. Jews were coming from Judea and Jerusalem. A mixture of Jews and Gentiles were coming from Idumea and beyond the Jordan. And Gentiles were coming from Tyre and Sidon. There was tens and perhaps twenties of thousands of people clamoring to see Jesus, to hear him, and most of all, to receive help and healing. There were so many people and so many demands that Jesus and the disciples, they couldn't even find time to eat. I read an article a few years back uh, about uh, actress Jennifer Lawrence, and in this article, she was being interviewed, and she stated that going in uh, to the movie business, she knew ahead of time that being an actress and a movie star would bring a certain loss of privacy. But what she says she didn't know was the deep emotional and physical toll that it would have on her. She was quoted in the article as saying, I knew the paparazzi was going to be a reality in my life, but I didn't know that I would feel anxiety every time I opened my front door or that I would be chased by 10 men that I didn't even know or being surrounded and how that feels invasive and makes me feel scared and gets my adrenaline going every day. You can say that this invasion of privacy is part of my job and it's going to be a reality of my life, Lawrence said, but then you don't expect how your body and emotions are going to react to it. And in her defense, she went on to say, look, you know, I still love being a movie star. This is just part of the price you pay and people aren't going to feel sorry for you making all of that money as an actor. So she seemed to have it all in perspective, but at the same time, the loss of privacy to points where she couldn't even eat. Jesus wasn't a celebrity, and if he had been, he would have been, I guess, signing autographs, shaking hands, holding babies, posting pictures on social media, and perhaps escaping to his waterfront condo. What made Jesus so popular was his ministry of miraculously healing people and casting the demons out of people that were demon-possessed. The people also sensed and knew his genuine compassion and concern. But in spite of all that, others had different reactions to him. And coming back here to verse 21, we have the first reaction that he was deluded. This phrase that Mark uses here, his own people, can refer to close friends or companions, but most often it refers to family. And the fact that his brothers and mother are with us here in verse 31, we'll get to that. But with that fact, it seems very likely that this was his family his own people. They came to lay hold of him, a Greek uh, word that literally means to seize and take into custody. It's used elsewhere in the Gospels to describe someone being arrested. So the family of Jesus thought he was out of his mind. They thought he was deluded. And uh, that means to stand outside yourself. It's ironic, in my opinion, that Jesus' family thought he had lost his mind. Based on what? In all those years growing up with his brothers and sisters and his parents, Jesus had never been irrational or irresponsible. He had never sinned. He just led a quiet life. And from his family's perspective, Jesus had never revealed any divine power during those first 30 years of his life. There is, by the way, and for the record, no biblical account or record stating that Jesus performed any miracles prior to his public ministry. There's bogus writings and materials and documents that claim Jesus performed miracles as a child, but they're exactly that, bogus and unbiblical. 
One example is in the second century, a, a document that surfaced called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. It was allegedly a gospel account about the early life of Jesus written by some unknown person named Thomas. In that document, it's alleged that Jesus did miraculous things as a child. For example, he would make clay pigeons and then turn them into real pigeons that would fly away. Uh, he caused another child's body to wither. He struck some neighbors with blindness. He resurrected a friend who had died, and he healed one of his brothers who had bitten by had been bitten by a snake. All of that is fairy tales, but some people will believe it. They want to believe it. Biblically speaking, when Jesus performed his first miracle, you'll recall in the Gospel of John, he turned water into wine at a wedding feast in the town of Cana. And in his Gospel, John specifically wrote that it was his first miracle and the beginning of his miracles. So biblically speaking, this was the first one, and Jesus didn't do miracles prior to that. Additionally, we read in Matthew's gospel that when Jesus visited his hometown of Nazareth and the people there had heard about his miracles, they were shocked. And they responded by saying, as Matthew recorded, they said, well, where did he get his power to do such mighty works? He's just a carpenter's son. We all know his family, his mother Mary, as well as his brothers and his sisters. In other words, if Jesus had performed any of those alleged miracles as a child, everyone in the small village of Nazareth would have been aware of it and would not be shocked by the recent miracles. But instead, they were all startled to hear the widespread reports of Jesus doing miracles, again, because he was just basically a quiet nobody from a common family that everyone knew. With that, we read in John's gospel that uh, the brothers of Jesus did not believe in his deity, and instead they would chide him and challenge him to go public with his claims or val validate who he really was. And John writes that they did this in John chapter 7 because they did not believe in him as Messiah or as the Son of God. Clearly then, and biblically, Jesus did not perform miracles as a child. So the family of Jesus is startled and surprised that he had gone from quiet obscurity to, um, well, I guess a frenzied notoriety and popularity. More specifically, it alarmed his siblings, not his parents. His adoptive father, Joseph, is never mentioned during the ministry years of Jesus, and scholars believe that he had passed away when Jesus was in his late teens and that would be several years before Jesus began his uh, public ministry at the age of 30. And his mother Mary certainly knew her son was divine from the angelic announcement of Gabriel to the actual virgin birth to the visit of the Magi and all those other circumstances. It's, it's funny, you know, at Christmas time we sing the Christmas song, Mary, Did You Know? And I think the answer is, of course she knew. Hello, she was a pregnant virgin. Uh, but his younger siblings didn't know, and they didn't believe in his true identity until after the resurrection. His siblings weren't there in Galilee in Mark chapter 1 when he cured a demon-possessed man. They weren't there with Jesus in Mark chapter 2 when he healed a paralyzed man. And they weren't there in chapter 3 when Jesus restored the deformed hand of a man. They only heard the stories, and by the time they arrived in Galilee to see their brother, they just saw that he was being followed by massive crowds, and all of this caused them to think that he had lost his mind. 
to their credit, I think their motive was concern for him. They loved him and they wanted to help him, but they were unsaved and they didn't understand what was happening. They were probably concerned that Jesus might hurt himself or get hurt by others. So they traveled about 20 miles from Nazareth to the Galilee area for this, uh, I guess you'd call it an intervention After the church was established in Acts chapter 2, people also thought the followers of Jesus were crazy as well. For example, when Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea for two years, he spoke to one of the governors during that time. His name was Festus, and he talked to him about the resurrection. And the response of Festus was in saying in Acts 26, Paul, you are beside yourself. Too much learning is driving you mad. In other words, you're crazy. When D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, was passionately sharing the gospel with people in the 19th century, they called him Crazy Moody. Hey, listen, better to be considered crazy for Christ than condemned for unbelief for all of eternity. Well, this now brings us to a far more serious accusation about Jesus as we pick up our reading in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub. And by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. So he called them to himself, and he said to them in parables, How or why would Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter, he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said, he has an unclean spirit." Here now, some scribes had traveled up about 60 miles from Jerusalem to confront Jesus, and their accusation against him was twofold, that Jesus himself was demon-possessed, if you can imagine that, and that it was by the power of Satan in hell that he was casting out demons. <sighs> Crazy. Their conclusion for Jesus healing people and casting out demons is that Jesus was possessed by Satan. So here now, the second conclusion about Jesus is that he was demonic. Recall, you'll recall just a moment ago, the first conclusion by the family was that Jesus was deluded. Here now, the second conclusion by the unsaved religious leaders is that Jesus was demonic. They uh, said that he was Beelzebub, or operating in the power of Beelzebub, which is another name for Satan. It uh, literally means Lord of the Flies. Uh, That name was used five times in the Old Testament. Jews were familiar with it. It was one of the uh, many gods worshipped by the Philistines, uh, Lord of the Flies. And so archaeological diggings in ancient Philistine city ruins have uncovered actually gold images of flies. So imagine this crazy scenario. Religious leaders are accusing holy Jesus, God come in the flesh, of being possessed and empowered by the devil. It's important to know this. No one ever denied a miracle of Jesus in the Gospels. No one ever said, oh, that didn't happen, because his miracles were public. They were visible and therefore undeniable. 
And since those scribes couldn't deny his miracles, they attributed his miracles to the power of Satan. This was blasphemy at its worst. Jesus then responds with logical questions and an analogy. His response was simple and rational. Why would Satan cast out Satan? Their accusation was absurd. Why would the devil want to cast out his own demons? Satan doesn't want to destroy his own kingdom. He wants to destroy the kingdom of God. A kingdom divided against itself can't stand, nor a house divided against itself. The devil doesn't want to heal sick people like Jesus was doing and help them. He wants to hurt them and to destroy them. It makes no sense. Jesus continues here, and in verse 27, he explains that no one can rob the house of a strong man unless he first overpowers him and binds him. And then once the strong man is tied up or restrained, then you can rob his house. And Jesus is saying that Satan is a strong man, but Jesus is stronger and able to bind him. Jesus robs his house in the sense that Jesus rescues those people the devil has possessed with his demons. Only God then in the person of Jesus is strong enough to overpower Satan and to cast out demons. So when Jesus casted out demons in his divine power, he was plundering Satan's house. This leads us into verses 28 through 30, and I think arguably some of the most misunderstood and controversial verses in the Gospels. These verses have led people into all kinds of discussions about the unpardonable sin and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Are those two things one and the same? And what do they even mean? Even among unsafe people, many of them have heard about the unpardonable sin. And I've met as a pastor a few believers over the years who have told me they committed the unpardonable sin. So what is the unpardonable sin? To make things even more confusing, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 32, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but anyone who speaks a word against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. So again, we ask, how are we to understand these words? Well, let me begin by saying that virtually all commentators are agreed that what took place here in Mark chapter 3 cannot be repeated today, and I would definitely agree with that, simply because Jesus, being God in the flesh, was here walking among the people. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was healing the sick and casting out demons. None of that can be duplicated today because Jesus is no longer here physically in person, walking among us and performing miracles that we can see as he did during his ministry. And so, ever since Jesus returned to heaven, the only unpardonable or unforgivable sin is continued unbelief. So once again, because the subject of the unpardonable sin is confusing to some and controversial to others, let's kind of recap our information here from Mark chapter 3. First off, notice, who is Jesus speaking to uh, when we're having this subject? In verse 23, he called them to himself and then answered them. And as we see from the previous verse, 22, Jesus is responding to the scribes. So he called them to himself. Secondly, several of those religious leaders had personally witnessed Jesus healing people 
of sicknesses and diseases, as well as casting out demons, but they still intentionally accuse Jesus of operating in Satan's power, which Jesus explained was absurd since the devil would never want to cast out his own forces, would never want to work against himself or his agenda. And then thirdly, the New Testament is quite clear that the only unpardonable sin today is the sin of unchanging, unrelenting unbelief. As we read in John chapter 3, listen to what Jesus said, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in the Lord, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. That, in a nutshell, is the unpardonable or unforgivable sin. As Jesus was preparing for his death, resurrection, and ascension back up to heaven, you might recall that uh, as he was with his disciples in the upper room, he said to them, I must go away to him who sent me, referring to God the Father. Then Jesus also told them that after he returned to heaven, the Holy Spirit would come to the earth. Jesus then explained, and when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So today, when you talk about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, well, it's the Holy Spirit who convicts the heart of the unsaved and points them to the truth about Jesus contained in the message of the gospel. So if a person unsaved person persists in their unbeliefs and they reject that truth and that gospel and what God has done for them, it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's the rejection of the Holy Spirit. It's the one and only true unpardonable sin. Every sin committed by every sinner, no matter how grievous, listen, every sin committed by every sinner, no matter how grievous, can be forgiven by God except rejecting God's offer of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. This would be a good point and place to talk about that as believers, while we cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit, we want to remember that we can quench the Spirit and we can grieve the Spirit. Quenching describes suppressing or extinguishing something like a fire, and grieving describes causing sorrow. And both of those acts take place when we as believers sin willingly and we don't turn away from it. And we're sinning either by sins of omission or sins of commission. In other words, what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Believers wonder, what's the difference between grieving the Spirit and quenching the Spirit? Here's one way to look at it. Grieving the Spirit is what we do to Him. Quenching the Spirit is what we refuse to let Him do through us. Now back to the subject of the unpardonable sin, I'd also like to say a word, I think it's important that I do, say a word about the difficult subject of suicide. In my years as a pastor, I've done a few memorial services for people who took their own lives. And as a pastor, I've spoken with many people who have thought that a Christian committing suicide was an unpardonable sin and would actually keep them out of heaven. Ironically, in some religions, it's the terrorist acts of a suicide bomber that supposedly guarantees their arrival in paradise. Talk about deluded and demonic. 
But for some then, suicide is considered to be an unpardonable sin. So we need to talk about that. Let me begin with the obvious, that committing suicide is indeed a sin. That's because the Bible forbids us to murder anyone, including ourselves. At the same time, our lives are a gift to us from God, and no one has the right to destroy the life that he has graciously created. Also, there's the less talked about fallout of suicide, which is the emotional scars that it leaves on the family and the friends. It leaves family and friends thinking that they failed in some way, which is not the case, but they have to live with the pain for the rest of their lives. So this prompts the question, if a Christian commits suicide, will it keep them from going to heaven? The answer is no, but obviously it's important that we understand why that is true. Going to heaven only happens by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Based on Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross, we repent of our sins and we receive Christ's offer of forgiveness by faith. At that moment of conversion, a person becomes an altogether new creation in Christ, as the Bible says, and all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. All of our sins are paid for by the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. So then, if a genuine believer commits suicide, and it does happen, then that is not the determining factor of whether or not they go to heaven. That's already been determined by grace through faith. That's the determining factor. Paul even wrote in Romans 8, Nothing shall ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So on the compassionate side, I do want to say that we cannot understand the depths of a believer's physical or emotional pain when it drives them to suicide. Let's not forget that the devil is a liar and a murderer who comes for the sole purpose of killing and destroying. When I've presided over the funeral service of a believer who committed suicide, I always want to remind the family and friends that one moment of darkness and desperation cannot undo the sacrifice and salvation of Jesus Christ on the cross. Remember, Jesus endured our darkness on the cross. But on the biblical side, let me also say that a believer committing suicide is still a very grievous, serious sin against God and against those who are left behind. It is a form of murder, and it dishonors the sovereignty of God in our life. As God told Paul, in the midst of his intense pain and suffering, my grace is sufficient for you. And as the psalmist said of God, your love for me is better than life itself. So in all circumstances, we need to trust and depend on God in the best of times and in the worst of times. This brings us now to the last section here in Mark 3. Let's um, go ahead and pick up in, looks like, verse 31. Then his brothers and his mother came. They were standing outside. They sent for him, calling for him. And a multitude was sitting around Jesus, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And then Jesus looked around in a circle at those who were sitting around him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. It's pretty clear that the brothers and the mother of Jesus coming and asking for him here is a continuation of what began back in verse 21. Remember, his own people came for him. 
uh, based on the thousands of people crowding around to see and hear and touch Jesus, it would not have been easy for his family to get close to him. But it seems like they probably told some of the other people in the crowd who they were, and perhaps those people helped at least push them closer towards Jesus where they were asking for him. Based on the information we have in the Gospels, by the way, Jesus had four brothers. We have their names given to us. And then he had sisters, plural. So he had at least two sisters. Now, being virgin-born through Mary, these were obviously half-brothers and half-sisters of Jesus through Mary and Joseph. And this obviously rejects the unbiblical idea that Mary maintained a perpetual virginity her whole life because she clearly had other children through Joseph after the virgin birth of Jesus. And as I mentioned earlier, the brothers of Jesus, and probably his sisters as well, didn't believe in him as far as being the Messiah or the Son of God. Again, we read that in John 7. But we do read, thankfully, that after his resurrection, his siblings believed in him, at least some, if not all of them. And two of his brothers, James and Jude, went on to write New Testament epistles And James, the brother of Jesus, also, according to Acts chapter 15, became the leader in the early church. Here now, his unsaved siblings have come to rescue Jesus from himself and take him back home. But when Jesus is told that his family is seeking him, he responds by saying, well, who is my mother or my brothers? And then again, looking around at the disciples, here are my mother and my brothers. They do the will of God, making them my brother, my sister, and my mother. And so the fishermen, the tax collector, and the zealot, who are now his disciples, were closer to Jesus than his own siblings. That's because these disciples now belong to the family of God, and they were doing the will of God. Jesus reminds us that our spiritual family relationship surpasses our physical family relationship. It's not uncommon for some believers to feel closer to the spiritual family than to their own unsaved physical family. Also, our spiritual family relationship is eternal, while our physical family relationship is temporary. And obviously, the very best scenario is when our physical family is also our spiritual family, and we praise God for that. So the third conclusion about Jesus, and the right one, is that he was and is divine. I'm guessing that when Jesus spoke these words here, it shocked his brothers, his mother, and the crowds who were listening But Jesus loves us far too much to ever allow us to delude ourselves into thinking we're okay when we're not. As one pastor said, I'm not okay and you're not okay, but it's okay because Jesus makes us okay. If you're forgiven in Christ by faith, then you're okay. And if you're not forgiven in Christ by faith, then listen, you're not okay. But you can turn to Christ right now by faith and receive his forgiveness for your sins. And I pray that you'll do exactly that. Everyone's going to live forever in one of two places, heaven or hell. We decide here and now whether it will be one or the other. It's going to be one or the other. We decide here and now which one it's going to be, either by receiving or by rejecting Jesus and the cross. As Pastor Adrian Rogers said, and I quote, God did not spare his own son from the cross. So what makes anyone think God will spare them from rejecting the cross? Well, thanks again for tuning in until our next podcast. May the Lord bless you.